Sometimes this world makes no sense to me. I'm torn between what others want and what is me. It seems a song is what the world demands, but how can I sing in this strange land? Until I die, I'll sing God's song, living in this Babylon, always looking for the shore of the world that I was made for. The world where the weak are finally strong and the righteous are known for righting wrongs. I want to see this earth start shaking, being impacted by a powerful generation that is finally waking up inside. And on the final day when I die, I want to hold my head up high. I want to look God himself in the eye and tell him that I tried. Good morning. The reading for today is going to be Daniel 5, verses 1 through 9. And if y'all can read along with me. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of the God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bling in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Abby. Good morning, Transit Church. How's everyone doing today? Are we good? Yay. Happy Daylight Savings Time, the national holiday that everyone loves so much. Hope you guys are as awake as I am. Um, well, if, uh, as you guys probably know, today we're continuing our sermon series on Daniel, Daniel chapter 5. Uh, turn uh, there in your Bibles or tap there. Uh, but our series theme, if you've been with us for a couple weeks, you know that our, uh, as we're going through the book of Daniel, our theme with this uh, series is faithfulness in exile. Faithfulness in exile. And this book of Daniel is about how four Hebrew boys around 605 uh, BC, Jerusalem, their hometown, was sieged by Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. They were ripped from their hometown in Jerusalem and were taken as exiles into pagan Babylon and first forced to serve in the king's palace. And the dilemma that's playing out through this book is, will these four young Hebrew boys remain faithful to Yahweh while living on foreign soil? On foreign soil. And, and, and what we're seeing, what we're looking at with this series is that kind of their dilemma is our dilemma, that the church is in exile. If the church is in America or the UK or Uzbekistan, what scripture clearly teaches us is that we belong to a new kingdom. We're the kingdom of God, that we're citizens of heaven, as Philippians 3.20 tells us. And so their dilemma is our dilemma. And what we're going to be asking and looking at this sermon series is, is will we too remain faithful to our King Jesus while living here on foreign soil? And uh, one of the things we learn in our text today in Daniel 5 is this. One of the things we learn about faithfulness to God uh, we've been looking at this uh, a bunch, and obviously we see that our faithfulness to him is, is, is just a response to his faithfulness to us while in exile. But one of the things we learned in Daniel 5 this morning is this, is that the key to our faithfulness to our king while in exile is fear. And what I mean by that is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. That's what we see in this passage. And before you walk out, let me, let me say this, that this concept of the fear of the Lord is a mega theme. 
woven throughout Scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's not what you think it is. It's actually a, or maybe it is what you think it is, but it's actually a beautiful thing, a wonderful thing. In Acts 9.31, it says this, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The early church 2,000 years ago, their, their multiplication model was not necessarily a seeker-friendly church model. It was the fear of the Lord. And then in Proverbs 9, uh, 10, we all know this verse, it says this, is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Beginning of wisdom. And uh, so there's a negative aspect and a positive aspect. The positive aspect of the fear of the Lord is just understanding accurately who God is, the omnipotent King of kings, the Lord of lords, right? So we have a reverence. We have an awe, a wonder of his majesty as creator. We look at the majesty and the vastness of this universe, and we, we bow down in reverence and awe, right? That's a proper fear. That's a proper reverence. But then there's also a kind of a negative aspect where we, where we have a healthy fear of the Lord's discipline. Right? And that, and that coming day of, uh, of judgment, there's a healthy fear there, right? And let me illustrate this. You may be saying, what does this look like? Well, uh, I'm glad you asked. Literally this week, I'm playing with my daughters. We're walking to the park and um, having a great time. I love my kids, right? And they love me. And we're having a great time. Daddy's happy and everything. And all of a sudden, my daughter, my oldest daughter, does something that I've never seen her do before. And she sits on the curb in somebody's parking spot that's vacant. And because I love my daughter, I'm telling her I see a car coming. And I recognize that that car on that, that strip in our townhouse, like, it has a spot somewhere there and is going to park. I don't know where. And I say, Kelsey, uh, get on the sidewalk. Stop sitting there. You're about to get crushed by a car. And my, my daughter, who heard me multiple times and the car's coming, is just sitting there. And, and, and either she's hearing me and she's going, I don't care what my dad says. I don't care what he's going to do because I don't fear what he's going to do. I'm staying here because I want to. And the, the car actually parked like three spots down, uh, which was terrifying. And then, you know, finally I gently, we go back into the house and I don't huff and puff, but I say, hey, we need to go into your room timeout and we need to, I'm going to talk to you first and we're going to timeout. But here's the deal, Kelsey. Here's the deal. Daddy loves you and daddy knows best. And the most dangerous place to be is, 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 is wandering from, what, from your daddy's commands, right? And, and so what I realized in that moment is that actually my daughter, this is, what, this is what complete absence of fear of the father looks like in our lives. When, when the Lord is repeatedly telling us, repent, there's a car coming for you. Repent, there's a car coming for you. Repent, there's a car coming for you. And we have no fear of our, of our, of our Lord. And we don't listen. We don't care. We say, God will be mocked. He will not do what he says. There is no car coming. I'm going to assert my will over his. And that's a very dangerous place to be. And that should cause us to work out our, our, our salvation with fear and trembling, as the Apostle Paul says, knowing that, knowing that one of the most dangerous things in our lives is wandering away from the Lord. It's the most dangerous place to be. And what we see in our text today in Daniel 5 is the courage that Daniel has to stand before kings because, listen, Daniel's fear of the Lord trumped any fear of pagan Babylon, right? So therefore, he was able to stand before them and love them and speak the truth and love to them. And, and we're going to see next week to the point that he was going to get thrown to the lions, but he knew that the safest place to be was walking lock and step with the voice of my father in sweet love and obedience to him. And there's another character in our text today, King Belshazzar, who had zero fear of the Lord, and that didn't work out too well for him as we just read. And so what we learn in our text today is that the key to Daniel's faithfulness to stand before uh, Babylonian kings and say hard words on behalf of the Lord was because his fear of the Lord and being obedient and faithful to him trumped any and all fear he might have to challenge earthly kings. So let me pray, and then we'll jump into this text. Uh, Father, we come before you, uh, uh, bringing you the, the glory and the blessing and the honor that's due your name. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You are creator over all, and you, and, you, and, and you are merciful, Lord Jesus. And so we come before you with mouths full of praise, thanking you for your steadfast love, your faithfulness to us, that you sent your Son to the cross on our behalf so that we could be spared what our sins deserve and instead be reconciled to you and experience an avalanche of your grace and your love and your guidance and your fatherly affection for us, Lord. You delight in us. You delight in your kids. And so we rest in that this morning and we say thank you, Lord. And we also repent today. And we ask God, teach us to rightly 
and accurately fear you, Lord Jesus. For, for, for in those areas in our lives where we are refusing to believe your word and repenting, would today be the day of repentance? Would today be the day of salvation? Lord Jesus, may we understand that the safest place to be, whether in the green pastures or the valley of the shadow of death, is, is lock in step with our good shepherd. Because you are good, and, and you are Lord, and you are our shepherd. And so we thank you for your posture towards us today. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would have your way. That you would magnify Jesus, help us to see Jesus for who he truly is and his posture towards us this morning. And I pray that he would be glorified, he would be magnified, he would increase in our lives, and I would decrease up here, Lord Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, we're going to journey through this uh, text together. We've got a lot of ground to cover, but verse 1, here we go. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Let's stop right there. You might be asking, who in the world is King Belshazzar? This is the first time we're introduced to him in uh, the text. But before we talk about King Belshazzar, we need to introduce you to King Nabonidus. Um, yes, it sounds like a skin disease or a professional hockey player. Either one. Pick your, pick your one there. But... Uh, um, <laughs> King Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon who reigned from 556 to 539 BC, and Belshazzar was actually his eldest son. And so simply put, for religious reasons, King Nabonidus decided to move his royal uh, residence out of Babylon to the city of Taman, and he left his eldest son Belshazzar in Babylon to be like a co-monarch, kind of a VP of the kingdom. So his dad leaves Babylon to set up his royal residence in Taman and puts his eldest son in charge of Babylon in his absence as like a co-monarch VP of the kingdom. Bad idea, Nabonidus, as we're going to see. And so if we're going to ask ourselves, well, how did King Belshazzar steward that great responsibility? He threw a party, right? And not just a party, he threw a rager of a party. His pops gave him him the keys to the kingdom, and he invites thousands of his friends and has this massive, great feast where the the wine was flowing like, you know, the rivers of Babylon, if you will. And my favorite detail in verse 1, and and commentators actually, uh, uh, this isn't me reading into the text, it's actually biblical commentators suggest this, is that detail in verse 1, when when, uh, the text says he drank wine in front of the thousand, that is the ancient Near Eastern way of saying that King Belshazzar was like up in front of all of his buddies and was doing like keg stands, you know what I'm saying? And like smashing beer cans on, on his forehead. Um, that's, the kind of, that's the kind of vibes we get from this great feast that King Belshazzar is, is uh, hosting. So the picture we get with this party is, uh, is that as the wine intake was increasing, there's a simultaneous decrease in wisdom and sound logic and, uh, and reasoning, okay? And that leads us to verses 2 through 4. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. And they drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Quick side note, it talks about uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar being his father. That's a generic use of the word father. Nebuchadnezzar is most likely his grandfather, and the generic use in the ancient Near Eastern uh, uh, word for ancestor was, was father. So just a quick side note. But what's happening here is this, is that Belshazzar commanded that the sacred holy vessels that were taken out of God's house, the temple in Jerusalem, uh, and, and God's furnishings in that temple, his sacred vessels, were to be uh, taken front and center in the party. And they were going to pour wine in those vessels to toast their gods. Okay? So they're taking God's vessels from God's temple and, uh, and using them for their profane and dishonorable purposes in this party. Um, and clearly what we see here is, is there's just, there just no fear of Yahweh. There's no fear of the Lord, right? For all intents and purposes, Belshazzar was like, Yahweh is a defeated foe, right? And it's not so much that this isn't fearing Yahweh. This is actually open mockery of Yahweh, open challenging of him, where he's saying, last time I checked, Yahweh, uh, you you got knocked out in the first round by our gods. It was embarrassing. It was all over the news. Here's the deal. We're going to use your sacred vessels to worship our gods, and you can't do anything about it. And if you did do anything about it, it doesn't matter because you're not who you say you are. Here's to Marduk. Here's to Nebo. 
here's the bow, let's party, right? That's a big deal. Zeal fear the Lord uh, and open mockery of him. So here's the deal. I, I, I love my father. My father loves me growing up. I also feared my father in a healthy way growing up. And um, if you don't know my dad, my dad is like a handyman on steroids. He, uh, he uh, built literally like a 1,500 square foot addition on the house we grew up in from like pouring concrete to shingles on the roof. In addition, he built a garage off of the house and like a deck and all. And, and, and anyways, it's a big deal. And in his garage, his garage, for the sake of illustration, was his holy temple. You tracking with me? And inside that garage were these sacred vessels called tools, right? And, uh, and I swear to this day, he's sponsored by DeWalt. I've never seen that many black and yellow screwdrivers and, and all that stuff in his house. But what I knew growing up is that I would never sashay into my father's you know, temple that he built with his own hands and take his DeWalt screwdrivers and like, you know, treat them however I wanted to do. That's not my call to make. Right? There's a line. There's a line in the sand where a loving father turns into uh, uh, who he truly is, the authority, enacting the authority to say, hey, you've crossed the line. That's not your call to make, son. Not that that ever happened, because it scares me today to think about me just doing that to my father's tools. But uh, <laughs> openly defies and challenges Yahweh. And verse 5 comes. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And the king's color changed. That means he immediately sobered up. The king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way. His knees knocked together. And the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. And the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck. He shall be third ruler in the kingdom. And then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his words were perplexed. And so if I were to summarize what's happening here in verses uh, five through nine, it's this, is if you've ever... Not that I watch WWE, Worldwide Wrestling or whatever, or, or encourage anyone to, but growing up I did, right? And the, the, the reigning champion would walk into the ring alone, get on the mic, and just boldly mock the person he just defeated, right? But then all of a sudden, entrance music would start playing. You know what I'm saying? Boom, boom, boom. And before you saw the dude coming back to take his title, the, the guy's eyes get all like, you know, he's scared, he's looking around, where's he going to come from, all that stuff. That's what's happening here is the Lord chooses entrance music, right? The writing on the wall appears. And, and let's, not, let's not miss the fact that this is terrifying, right? <laughs> terrifying. And by the way, it, to believe in the supernatural is to believe that God is creator, Lord, and he is sovereign, and he can intervene in, in his creation whenever he wants, Right? And so, boom, he decides, okay, that's how you want to uh, party. Well, then, then, then here's the deal. This party's coming to an end. A hand appears, and it starts writing on the wall. Everyone sobers up, and my man, Belshazzar, is terrified. Absolutely terrified. And rightly so. His color changes. His knees knock. His limbs give way. And actually, what that means in the original language, it means that um, he needs a new tunic, is what it means. That's how, that's how, that's how terrified he was. Um, and so what he does is he yells loudly to the wise man. He, he shoots up the flare, SOS, and offers, he offers, the, he offers everything he can in his power. That's how terrified he is. He's saying, you will be third ruler in the kingdom if you can tell me what this means. If you can tell me what this means. And what we've seen here is that the wise men are more like the three stooges at this point who come in, the astrologers, the enchanters, and they can't help out these Babylonian kings. And uh, so if that's not bad enough that, that he's terrified, he can't get any help, you want to know how really bad the situation is, it's when the queen mother gets involved. That's when you know it's really bad. So the queen enters the scene, and uh, verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man, isn't always nice when, when moms come and comfort grown men in the middle of their parties. To, anyways, uh, there's, a man, there's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. 
in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, that the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Quick side note, the queen mother here is, um, is most likely Nebuchadnezzar's wife or uh, um, uh, his, his, his mom, Belshazzar's mom. And uh, so I love verse 11. We're covering a lot of territory here, so I have to hone in and hone out. But verse 11, she says this, there is a man. I love that. There is a man who she says is full of the spirit of God. What she said, what, what she doesn't recognize, but we know, is that this man Daniel was full of the Holy Spirit. Full of the spirit of God. And, and, and that Holy Spirit, what that Holy Spirit does, is it would, he, he, would, he would give words to Daniel. He, he would interpret these dreams that these kings would have. Explain these words. The wisdom would flow through the presence of God living inside Daniel. So much so that Daniel rose to the position of the chief of the magicians. And, and Daniel's character preceded him throughout decades, right? Um, his character was known. Why? Because this Daniel knew God. He, he knew and loved God. What Sinclair Ferguson said in, in his book on Daniel, I love this. He said, Daniel was in fellowship with another world. It's beautiful. And it wasn't just that Daniel knew God, had a relationship with God, could hear from God, could speak on behalf of God as a prophet. But what we know about Daniel, too, is that he feared God more than he feared anyone else because Daniel does crazy brave things, right? He obeyed and spoke. He obeyed and spoke what the Lord revealed to him no matter what the consequences were. And so my question to us in this room is not if, but when, maybe our family members or our friends are in a crisis, is verse 11, that word, there is a man or there is a woman, going to be uh, coming out of their mouth about you and I? We're faithful, we have loved them, they have seen that, that, that we're in fellowship with another world, that we love God, that we know God, that we fear God alone, and that when the crisis comes, not if, but that's, they're calling out to us, right? And saying there's something they have, they see the hope of Jesus that we have. And they want that, and they come to us. That's what, that, is, that is Daniel here. And by the way, Daniel is no longer the young Hebrew teenager. He's in his 80s at this point, in his 80s. And uh, what the queen mother is saying is he's the, he's the goat of the wise men, the greatest of all time, the Michael Jordan, the Wayne Gretzky, if you will. She just lists his resume. And at this point, we're not sure what Daniel is doing, but he's clearly kind of semi-retired of sorts, and he gets called off of the bench. And this is what happens next. Then Daniel, verse 13, was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I've heard of you, that the spirit of, of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and gold chains around your neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Uh, if we read through this quickly, it's easy to miss Belshazzar's cynicism and his disrespect to Daniel. He's reminding Daniel of his roots. Did you catch that? This is what he's saying. He's saying, hey, 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 Daniel, you're that conquered Hebrew slave, right? That was ripped from your home, that our king Nebuchadnezzar, like, didn't he destroy Jerusalem? It, 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 that's who you are, right? Okay, just making sure. And aren't you really old? Like, are you from, like, the Reagan era? You know what I'm saying? Like, Nebuchadnezzar, like, you're really old. Okay, let's see what you got, old man. Let's see if you can, let's see if you can, you know, do what everyone says you can do. Let's see if you still got it. That's the kind of the, the, the sarcasm, the disrespect here. And I love Daniel's response. And by the way, uh, side note, anyway, 17, here we go. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, I love this, Clint Eastwood style, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. I love Daniel's response here. He says, I don't need your trinkets. I don't need your cute clothes. I don't need your cash prize. I will not be bought. There's one king I serve. There's one king I bow down to. There's one king I fear. That's what he's saying. 
how in the world is Daniel able to respond like this? Is because his fear was in the right place. His fear was in the right place. I don't fear you. One of the most powerful men in the ancient Near East at that time who could have killed him on the spot, I don't fear you. I don't bow down to you. I don't, I don't first and foremost listen to your voice or your commands. I listen to his. I listen to his. And listen, the fast track for you and I to overcome our fear of man is to simply fear God more. It is. It's freedom. There's freedom. There's so much freedom that comes when we love the Lord and we know a proper, healthy fear of him. Look at Matthew 10, the words of Jesus. Look at this. These are the words of Jesus. So Jesus is talking about fear of man to his disciples. Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whisper, proclaim on the mountaintops. He's saying, like, with Daniel, like Daniel's given some revelation from the Lord, and he's speaking it. He's speaking it, no matter the consequences. In verse 28, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You want to overcome fear of man? Have a proper, healthy fear of the Lord. And that will supersede any and all a fear that, 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 that men could potentially cause you harm or whatever. And Jesus says, whatever I tell you, you say, and that's exactly what Daniel does. It's not just that he knew God and loved God and heard from God, but he had the fear to obey him and actually say hard and dangerous things. And, and that's what we see with the fear of the Lord is that uh, oftentimes we have an a, a, a inaccurate view of it and we're like, oh, it's oppressive and all this stuff. No, 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 listen. The fear of the Lord sets us free, church. It sets us free. We want to learn how to faithfully pursue Jesus to, be, to respond to his faithfulness to us with faithfulness to him until the day we die as we learn, hey, hey, I'm going to fear him. The discipline of the Lord is a thing. I don't want that discipline. The safest place to be is listening to what he tells me to do. If he calls me to go overseas to, to, to dangerous places, that's actually more safe than riding this thing out until I die. You tracking with me? The safest place to be is with our good shepherd through the valley of the shadow of death and through the green pastures. And with a side note about Daniel here, he's in his 80s and the Lord is using him mightily. The Lord is using him mightily. Sometimes our best years of ministry come in front of us in our later years than behind us because we've learned that, that, that this world is fleeting. We've learned a lot of lessons on the way and Daniel in his 80s is still being used mightily by the Lord. May that encourage us to stay faithful to the end. All right, verses 18 through 28, Daniel here speaks on behalf of the Lord and this is what he says to King Belshazzar. O king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all people's nations' language trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly. He was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He, he was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And watch, watch verses 22-33. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, stone, which do not hear and do not see and do not know, but the God in whose hand, watch this, watch this, the God in whose hand is your breath, and your life and all your ways you have not honored. And verse 24, then from his presence, the hand was sent, the writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. And this is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. As a quick recap here, Daniel, uh, again, was challenged by Belshazzar. Hey, let's see if you have an old man. Uh, here, he passes him the ball. He's on like the half-court line. See if you can drain this three. Daniel steps back as an 80-year-old man and just drains it swish, right? 
just, just hits this interpretation on, on the head through the, through the revelation of the Holy Spirit. And what sticks out here is that Daniel, again, is speaking very hard words on behalf of the king because Daniel didn't have fear of Babylon. And listen, he didn't have hope in Babylon either. Right? It wasn't just that Daniel didn't have fear of what Babylon could do. It was also that his hope wasn't placed in the cash prize that the king was going to give him if he got the interpretation. Right? Like, like his hope wasn't clutching to his 401k or, or this worldly pleasure or anything that Babylon could give him as far as comfort and security goes. His comfort, his security, his salvation, his everything was found in knowing God. And therefore, he was able to obey God in exile. And one of the first things that Daniel says is this to King Belshazzar. He says, Belshazzar, you should have known better. You knew about Nebuchadnezzar's story. You knew all about it. Everybody knew about it. You knew about this, and yet you didn't learn the lesson from him. Nebuchadnezzar, as we saw last week in Daniel 4, was humbled by God, and he responded, as we all should, with just repentance. That's what God is after, is our repentance, is turning from, from walking away from God and turning, our, our, our turning directions and walking now towards God, away from our sin. Nebuchadnezzar did that in Daniel 4. Belshazzar didn't learn the lesson. And, and not only that, the second thing is, is what he says here, is that Belshazzar, you've lifted yourself up against Yahweh. And not just that, but with the very life that God the Creator has given you, you've used that against Him. The breath, whose whose hand is in your life and your breath and all your ways are in His hand, and you've used all those gifts against Him. And that's the audacity of our sin, is that our Creator gives us life and breath in our lungs, and then we use that breath in in our lungs to curse His name. And we use our lives to dishonor Him and, to, and to, to run away from him and not obey him and not love him as he's, as he's moved heaven and earth to call us and reconcile us to himself. I couldn't help but think of this, this illustration to illustrate this point. It's like there was this picture with me for a moment that um, there's this wife who's, who's in love with her husband, right? And it's his birthday's coming up and she buys him this two-seater beautiful sports car. And, so, and she, just want, she just can't wait to see the delight and the joy on his face of this, this new gift that she's going to give him. And it's got two seats, and she can't wait to, to share in that gift of, like, I can't wait to see all the places we're going to go and all the fun we're going to have in this new sports car, right? And so the, the, the husband wakes up, it's in the driveway, the bow's on top, and she goes, here's your gift. And the husband rips the keys out of her hand, gets in the car, peels out, and goes, picks up another woman, and leaves his wife forever. That's what it's like. That's what our sin is. When God gives us the gift of life to be shared with him, and we peel out and go chase after other gods. That's what it's like. For, uh, Colossians 1, 16, we learn that Jesus is creator. And, and, and what we learn there, it says this, is that all things were created through Jesus and for him. That the reason you and I exist is we're here because our creator created us. But not just that, is that he loves us and he created you and I for himself. He created you and I for himself to dwell with him forever, to feast at his table forever. And our sin, our turning away from him, causes that sin separation and disrupts that fellowship, that relationship with God that we were created to have. God gave us the gift of life so he could, we could share that with him right? As Lord, we return that. Like, like it wasn't, we don't, have, we don't need this deistic view of God who just flipped the dominoes and said, go do whatever you want. No, God, God loves us. And, and the Bible says that we, the church, we're in a covenant relationship with him, a husband to his bride, the church. And that's why we want to be faithful to him because he's been so faithful in pursuing us. As we've been driving away, he has moved heaven and earth and Jesus went to the cross to call us back home, to tell us to turn around and here's what we need to, to, to learn about the judgment of God is that the judgment of God to us is, 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 is as scary as this, is if we want to drive away from the presence of God and have nothing to do with him, the judgment he gives is letting us go. That's the judgment. He will shout. He will call us. He will move heaven and earth. He'll surround us with other believers to call us to repentance. He will send his son, Jesus, to die on the cross to call us home. But at the end of the day, if we want nothing to do with the person in the presence of God, hell is eternal separation from him, and hell is just God giving us what our hearts have chosen. And that should terrify us. 
Scripture says today is the day of salvation. Repent. God is... God in his kindness is screaming to us today, repent. I desire that none should perish, but all should return to me because I'm a good father and I love you. But there's judgment coming for those who don't repent. And that judgment, that writing on the wall, is yes for Belshazzar and also for us. But this is what the writing on the wall meant. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. That mene means to number. It means that the days of your, your, your kingdom were numbered. Tekel means to weigh that. Actually, Belshazzar, you were weighed in the balance and found wanting. And Parson is that your kingdom is going to be divided. And what we see next is that it wasn't, that God, that it wasn't just that God gave this word, but actually God, what we learn all throughout Scripture is that God will not be mocked. He keeps his word. What we reap, we will sow. What we reap, what will we sow. And uh, to wrap up, slowly wrap up, verses 29 through 31. Then Belshazzar gave the command... And Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. And here's the irony, is Belshazzar declares Daniel to be the third king in a doomed kingdom. Right? And... In, in, a, in an ironic way, Daniel accepts the gift knowing that it, it's meaningless. It's like they're on the beach, and King Belshazzar has made this awesome sandcastle that's bigger than all the other sandcastles, and then he, he, he creates another seat for Daniel to sit in, and Daniel's pointing at the waves and saying, Belshazzar, there's a tidal wave coming. There's a tidal wave coming. Repent. There's a tidal wave coming, and Belshazzar's saying, no, no, here you go. Here's the third seat in my castle made of sand. And Daniel sits down. says, okay. And that very night, uh, he lost his life and his kingdom was taken. And actually what we learn in extra-biblical history, extra-biblical literature uh, outside the Bible, is that on the night in 539 B.C. when the Medo-Persian Empire uh, uh, captured Babylon, what we learn is that one of the reasons it was so easy for them to do that is the entire city was partying. There's this great feast. And one commentator put it this way. I love that, this application to us. He says, every day of our lives, we are feasting on the edge of the grave. Every day of our lives, we are feasting on the edge of the grave, just like Belshazzar and the Babylonians. We have no idea when that day is coming. We have no idea when the feast is over and when the music stops playing. And these past six months have been a very sobering season for my family. Uh, I have done more hospital visits for family members in the past six months than I've done in about 10 years. Heart attacks, kids uh, uh, being born dead, airlifted to hospitals, sisters should be paralyzed, falling off horses, grandfather passing away, other other family members in in the ER and the hospital, so on and so forth. And it has been a remarkably sobering season where it's a full dose of reality, where the fact of the matter is that every day all of us are feasting on the edge of the grave because we have no idea what tomorrow brings us. No idea. And um, one of the most sobering moments was I was able, by God's grace, to pray at my grandfather's bedside a few days before he passed away. And he's with Jesus now. He's a, 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 just a... When you look up gentleman in the dictionary, that was him. Uh, just an amazing, amazing man. I love that guy. And I couldn't help leaving that time with him in the hospital and just reflecting on the reality of death and reflecting on my own life and everything I hold so, so everything that I worry so much about, everything I cling to, all the, all the false comforts this world brings you. And I realize this, is that when you're at the edge of the grave, it doesn't matter how big the sandcastle is that you're clinging to. Your thoughts are on what is in front of you, right? And I also learned from this is that there's only one place to find hope and comfort and confidence beyond the grave, and that's in Jesus Christ. Trust in who he is, what he's done for you. I was able to encourage my grandfather at his bedside and say, Grandpops, it's not about what it's not about our good works. Our hope is not God, please accept me so so because I'm I'm really good. It's about have I trusted and in, in, have I accepted the free gift of salvation in Jesus, in his works, that I'm justified by his sacrifice on the cross. Have I accepted that? 
Have I humbled myself and saying, my greatest need is to receive that gift and rest my confidence in, in his obedience, in his love, in his sacrifice, in his works. To receive that, that's our only hope, is putting our trust not in ourselves, but in Jesus. And that's a far greater confidence than the shaky foundation of our castles made of sand. But this is what Scripture makes clear. And because uh, I'm doing my best to fear the Lord more than I, I fear man, um, I really feel... Uh, uh, this is what I love about the transit church. And one of the reasons, actually, I came on staff here is one, because I, I love Jeff a lot and was really looking forward to doing ministry with him. But two, was the fact that we go through books of the Bible from the pulpit. Because if, I, if it was dealer's choice up here and I were to pick a topic to preach on, I got news for you, it wouldn't be fear and judgment. <laughs> right? But here we are in Daniel 5. And this is the full counsel of God's word. And I believe, and Jeff believes, the elders here believe, that we are accountable on your behalf to stand before Jesus on the day of judgment as a pastor and say, Nick, did you preach the full counsel? Did you prepare these people for the day that was coming for them where they were going to stand before me? And so, I don't, I, so, so that's, that's the fear that's, uh, of, of a proper fear, of a healthy fear that's driving me to speak this. And what we learn, what we learn, that it's not just death. What Scripture makes clear is that there's something that immediately precedes death, follows death. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And then 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so if you were to ask the question, what happens when you die? It's the day of judgment. It's you and I standing before the holy, the righteous, king of kings over the universe, who alone, as king and as lord and as creator, has the right to judge as the perfect judge. And, and, and scripture makes clear is we are going to give an account for how we responded and stewarded the grace that he has shown us in Christ Jesus. Has the life of Jesus, his suffering, his death on the cross, his burial, and his resurrection, listen, has it been honored? Has it been obeyed? Has it been accepted? Or has it been rejected and mocked? And on that day, what will, we, what will we say? What will we rest our hope on? And the beautiful thing about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is that we can approach that day with humble confidence. And even with a smile on our face, knowing that, yes, as a Christian, my sins are covered by the Lamb, I'm forgiven, but I will be held accountable for how I stewarded the grace of God. I will be in heaven with him forever, and but there will be eternal consequences in heaven for how I stewarded his grace that he's shown me in Christ Jesus. This is biblical. This is biblical, but I know that I'm covered by the Lamb. My books are paid. Nick Mudrizo, is, his, his, his account is clear. I'm forgiven. I am loved. I'm accepted. I'm a son of God. And we can approach the throne of grace with confidence because of who Jesus is and who he says I am. And so what we learn in Scripture is that, yes, God is judge, but he's a gracious judge. That, yes, God is a God of justice, but he's a God of love. And actually, he's a God of mercy, and his mercy triumphs over judgment. And where do we see this beautiful marriage of God's justice and his love meet? We see that meet on the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ. That's where we see that beautiful marriage of God's love and his justice, the place where Jesus bore our sins. He took it from us, took it for us, so that we could be spared the wrath of God, forgiven of our sins, and reconciled to God. In Romans 5, 6-11, I'll conclude with this. I love this. Look at God's heart towards you. Look at his posture towards you. Look at the lengths he's gone to rescue you. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Have, so have you known a love like Jesus? Do we understand, church, that Jesus died for us? That somebody actually gave their life for you out of love? That that's how much he loves you? That he would go to the cross and absorb the wrath of God on your behalf? Because he loves you. For God so loved the world. He loved each and every one. That's what Jesus, that's what drove Jesus to the cross. Has anyone loved you like that? Where are you going to find love like that? You're not. Watch, watch, look at this kind of love. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, 
Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, driving away from him with his body, his life, his breath, Christ went to the cross and died for us. And since therefore we have been justified by his blood, by his sacrifice, we're justified legally. We can stand before God as righteous. And much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The cross of Jesus Christ is the grand display, the banner lifted up to humanity of this is my love for you, humanity, and this is also my wrath against your sin and wickedness. But there's a way to be forgiven. There's a way to be safe. There's a way for you to approach and look and be on the precipice of the edge of the grave and cross through it with confidence because you know Jesus and he knows you. And you know that that, that, there, that, that is a good foundation that can never be shaken. And see, the cross is the place where the innocent son of God was crushed for sins that weren't his to bear. The place where Jesus died so that we could live forever with him. The place where Jesus was forsaken so we could be forgiven. The place where he absorbed the wrath of God so that we could be reconciled to God as sons and daughters. And talking about the fear of the Lord, what the cross does teach us is that God takes our sin really seriously. And we often take it too lightly. Our sin was such a big deal that the highest price that could ever be paid for your redemption, for your salvation and mine, was the giving of the very Son of God to die on your behalf. And this is our response, verses 10 through 11. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The good news of the gospel is that we are a people who rejoice in the reconciling work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We do not keep our eyes on the sand and, uh, and, 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 and look at our sin and wickedness. We see that, we look to the cross and see that our sin and wickedness was nailed to the cross and is covered by the blood of the Lamb. We're good. Amen. It's a day of rejoicing. It's a good news. It's a good news message, a great news message. That when you come to know Jesus and the love that he has and the lengths he went for you, man, you, you have joy. You have love for God, and you do have a healthy fear of him, but, but, but you have a, 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 a joy and a love that cannot be shaken. I couldn't help but think of this hymn as I was thinking about my coming day where I'm going to stand before my King Jesus and give an account for the way that I've, I've stewarded his grace in my life. And this is, this is our hope this morning. This is our hope. My sin... Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Amen. Trans Church, I want to give us a moment to respond. I think some of us here uh, need to go before the Lord in repentance today. Uh, um, I feel like the Holy Spirit's going to obviously be working in your hearts through this message. And so I'm going, to, I'm going to go silent and just encourage you to cry out to Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, no matter where you're at today, and receive his forgiveness and receive his love, receive his love for you today. So cry out to him in faith. I'm going to go silent and then I'll close us in prayer.
Father, we, we come before you grateful for your mercy. So grateful. So grateful. The height, the length, the depths that you have gone to search us out, to seek us out, to, to pursue us, to save us, to save us from destruction. You're such a good God. And you did that for your enemies. You did that for those who were far from you. You did that to those who openly mock you and reject you. And so forgive us. Oh, forgive us. For our lack of reverence, our lack of awe, our lack of gratitude for who you are and all your, your gifts and your, and your mercy that you've given us. For lack of just obedience and listening to your word. When your commands are our are, are safety, your commands are a delight because in them we find you, we find life, the voice of our Father who loves us and doesn't want us to get uh, 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 harmed, Lord. So thank you for your, your love, your posture towards your kids. And I, and I pray for the Holy Spirit just for you to, to increase in our lives that, 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 that idea of, of knowing how deeply loved we are, the height and the depth and the length of your love for us. In Christ Jesus, we thank you, God, that... Um, you sent your son, Jesus, who did what we could never do for ourselves. The vessels, the sacred vessels of our bodies and our lives that, that you have given us to honor you, we have used for dishonorable and profane things. And yet Jesus incarnated and took a body and his cup was unblemished. And with that unblemished cup, he took on all of our sins. All of us, all of us, all of our sins. And with that same cup, bore the full cup of your wrath against our sins and wickedness. And the good news of the gospel here today is that it doesn't matter how dirty the cup is. There is no cup that is too dirty that Jesus cannot clean and redeem and forgive. It doesn't matter what's behind us. It matters who Jesus says uh, he is and what he's done for us, Jesus. So we thank you, God. We thank you that your mercy triumphs over judgment. And I thank you for your words, uh, your truth here in 1 John. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, oh, we confess our sins to you, return, returning to you, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, would we walk in that forgiveness today? Father, teach us to walk in a life of daily repentance, receiving your forgiveness today, knowing that we are cleansed from sins past, present, and future. We come before you grateful and thankful, Jesus, for all the work that you've done. And we pray this in your name. Amen.